Welcome to the Women in Sport and Exercise Academic Network podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jackie Forsyth, and also co-founder of the network. The purpose of the Women in Sport and Exercise Academic Network is to grow, strengthen, and promote research on women in sport and exercise with the ultimate goal of optimizing women's athletic success and their participation. With these podcasts, we wish to bring you information from leading academics who are researching about women in sport and exercise and provide you with advice and support for the exercising female. Please remember our disclaimer that the opinions, content and recommendations contained within our podcast are for general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, treatment or diagnosis. In this episode, Dr. Lucy Piggott talks about her PhD on gender equity in sport governance, her advice she has for organisations and individuals to foster gender equality, and also her current research projects and activities. Dr. Lucy Piggott is a research fellow at the University of Chichester. She has recently completed a doctorate looking at gender equity within English sport governance. In her current role as research fellow, Lucy is working with internal and external colleagues to develop research on women and sport. Lucy sits on the operational management group for the Anita White Foundation, which aims to combine scholarship and activism for women and sport. She is also coordinator of the Women's Sport Leadership Academy, which offers a residential for women sport leaders so that they can further develop their leadership, confidence and competence. I've got Lucy Piggott here today with me. Um, I'm going to start talking with you, Lucy, about your work from your PhD. I know a little bit about it, but could you tell me a little bit more? Yeah, for sure. Firstly, uh, thanks for having me. Um, And I suppose to start with the background for why I conducted this research, um, essentially it's because there's a continued lack of women within leadership positions within English sport governance, but also across the world. Um, So my research really looked to understand more at an in-depth level, some of the gender power relations that are happening within sport organisations that continue to reproduce these gendered trends where men are dominating within decision-making positions in sport governance. So uh, what I did was I conducted interviews with board members, executive leaders, middle managers within two national governing bodies, England Golf and the Lawn Tennis Association, so two large established national governing bodies Um, and I also conducted observations within their two headquarters and that was observing general organisational practice but also key events such as board meetings, strategic meetings, uh, departmental meetings and so on. So that observational element was actually really really useful not only for the observations that I saw and and, uh, analysed but also to develop that rapport and um, to get general organisational knowledge. So I was really trying to understand within the two organisations what the gender representation was, how many men and women on the boards and executive leadership teams, and then what is happening within the organisations at different levels of organisational practice. 
to understand why these trends keep occurring. And did those observations that we, you, you were making, did they match up what the individuals were saying or was sometimes there a bit of a mismatch? Generally, it did match up. Um, I found that individuals seemed to be pretty honest within their interviews, which did surprise me somewhat because some of them were quite high profile individuals within the sport. I found that generally the male interviewees, because I interview both men and women, uh, which was really important to me because if men are those within positions of power and men are those that are dominant, then obviously we need to understand their experiences and perspectives. So sometimes I found that the men seem to deem organisational culture in particular as being a bit more gender neutral or a bit more positive than the women suggested or observations suggested. But generally it was it aligned fairly well between the interviews and the observations, yeah. And have you been able to use any of these findings to provide recommendations for people? So that's where I'm at at the moment. Um, I My PhD was sort of officially signed off in April of this year. So I'm a few months down the line and I'm currently writing up reports for the two organisations that are talking about the key findings, which I, I can talk about in a moment. So they're sort of accessible reports specific to the organisations. I'm also going to develop reports for Sport England, UK Sport and uh, women in sport so that those organisations that are actually producing the governance code, producing strategies and policy and so on, that my research can be used there. And I've also had a few organisations that have got in touch with me uh, because they've heard about my research and they're interested to see how I can essentially do a similar thing within their organisation to improve gender equity within leadership, but also organisational culture more widely. So I'm having some conversations with a couple of NGBs at the moment around that. And you said you were going to talk about your findings. What findings then did specifically you come up with that were insightful? Yeah, so there were three broad findings, I suppose, that that I found. And the first, unfortunately, was unsurprising in that I found that sport governance does continue to privilege men um, and masculinity, and it continues to normalise and naturalise men within leadership positions. And the second, the second broad finding is that these privileging of, of men and male domination, it was very multi-layered. So it happened at all levels of organisational practice. I looked at firstly the macro structural level. So things like formal rules and processes such as governance rules, recruitment processes, election processes and so on. Um, I found that they both directly and indirectly privileged men. An example of that was England Golf. At the time of research, they had a rule where of the 13 board members, 10 were elected from the council. And of those 10 elected directors, six were always women, uh, sorry, six were always men and four were always women. And that was to reflect gender trends in participation within the sports, their membership. But if you're gonna enforce rules where you've got six men and four women straight away, that creates a gender imbalance. And um, so that's an example of, of quite a direct result of, of macro structures. And then at the mesocultural level, I found that there were informal organisational practices that reinforced this naturalisation of men and masculinity within leadership positions. So examples of that was gendered language, such as the position of chairman or the chair of the organisation was referred to as chairman. And straight away, researchers suggested that if you're saying chairman, someone automatically thinks man. 
Um, another example of that was that at the Lawn Tennis Association, when I was researching, they were they were recruiting for a CEO at the time. Um, and in some meetings, people were saying, when the new CEO gets here, he will do this and he will do that. And there was absolutely no clue at that point who the CEO was going to be and that it was going to be a man. So you can see that the gender language within the organisation is just normalising that leaders are or will be men. Um, and other things such as gender dress codes, um, expectations around working practices and so on with some of those informal practices. And then at the micro individual level, I found that generally men had more uh, opportunity to accumulate power through their cultural, social and also physical beings themselves. So an example of this was that women leaders that I spoke to actually felt that they had less physical presence, authority and power as leaders than their male counterparts. And that could be through their physical stature being physically smaller in size than men, which made them feel like they had less physical authority across a room. And also women spoke about their pitch of their voice. So if a man has got a lower voice, which on average we know that men do have lower pitched voices, then it's generally seen as being more authoritative than a female voice, which is on average higher pitched. So you can see how the, these issues, they're not at any one level. They're actually occurring at all levels of organisational practice, which means that when we're looking at strategies to change organisations and to make them more gender equitable, then we also need to address these at all of these different levels of practice. And at the moment, there's a lot of work being done at the structural level around governance codes, quotas, targets, and at the individual level around the development of individual women leaders. But where work really needs to be done is at that cultural level, looking at changing informal organisation practices. That's really yeah the next stage. Is that possible then to change that cultural perspective? So if you were a consultant, for instance, to a governing body within sport, how would you implement that change to ensure that change occurred in the cultural domain? Yeah, it's a really tough one. And culture is really tough to challenge because of its very deep rooted nature. And it's that old traditional thing of we've always done it this way. And that's always really dangerous thinking. And us as human beings don't like to change. But I do think that there are ways in which we can start to change organisational culture. And I think the first step in this is increased awareness and reflexivity to start with, because not everybody within organisations is even aware of some of the problematic practices. They're not aware that some of it happens. And secondly, they're not aware at times the problematic results or outcomes of those practices. So things such as the word chairman, it wasn't until I had these conversations with some of the individuals that they realised the impact that that could have um, informally and subconsciously. So I think that's the first stage. And then the second stage, I think, is creating this organisational buy-in, because essentially if we're going to change practice and change culture, then organisations need to place higher value on alternative practices. Because if you don't value change more highly than what you're currently doing, then you've got no motive or reason to do so. And I think two ways in which we can increase organisational buy-in to enable organisational cultural change is linking gender equitable practice and gender equity within leadership with organisational targets, values um, and performance. Because if we can evidence a stronger link between gender equity and an organisation that embodies the values that it wants to and also increases its performance, then I think organisations are going to have a much greater chance to um, and motivation to change what they're doing at the cultural level. 
You know, often we kind of sit here as individuals, though, and I know you said there are quite a few things that have been done at the individual level and it's a culture shift that's needed. But that is so hard, like you said, it, it demands a lot of buy-in, like you say. It, yeah. it demands everybody to be interested in making that change. So if you're sitting there in a company and you feel that you want to sway somehow people's thoughts and feelings and opinion and culture is anything that you can do if you're sitting there as somebody who's not a leader but working in an organization is anything you can do to shift that culture I think a big thing and it it comes hand in hand with culture is creating a safe space firstly for individuals to feel that they can make change and they can stand up for themselves and they can call things out because I think if we're going to it's that thing with um, if you finish a meeting and everyone leaves their coffee cups. If you're the first person, you're you're making a stand, right? I'm going to pick up my coffee cup and I'm going to. People then follow because they see what you're doing. They see, oh yeah, actually that is the right thing to do, and they do so. So it needs people to be the first people to pick up the coffee cup. But you also need a safe environment because some of the women that I spoke to saw that feminism was incongruous with popularity and, and social capital so they felt like it was a um, a way up between either standing up for women and being actually unpopular and being seen as a bit of a pain in the backside um, or actually just putting that to one side not rocking the boat which was the term that I heard quite a lot don't bang the drum don't rock the boat because the way that we can actually move forward is by women getting leadership positions and being role models so I think for women they feel like they kind of have two paths that they can take so it's that feminist I suppose the standing up fighting for right side of things or it's actually quietly getting on with their job doing the job well and then leading the way for other leader for other female leaders so I think there's two ways that people can look at it and I think there's from what I've understood from the people I've spoken to there's different opinions on on which is the most effective um, and I suppose I don't have the answer, but I think we need a bit of both. And you do some of this work as part of the Women's Sport Leadership Academy. Is that right? Does your research feed into that in terms of how you can promote better leadership competence within women? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, my research specifically, I mean, this we had the Women's Sport Leadership Academy the week after last. Um, so it was the 16th to the 21st of June. And I conducted a, a session around my, my research and some of the participants were interested in that. But the, the Women's Sport Leadership Academy started way before I even did my, my PhD. Um, it, it first started in 2014 and we've had six residential weeks since. And it's a programme of the Anita White Foundation, which is based here at the University of Chichester. And essentially the mission is to provide opportunities for women leaders to develop their confidence and competence as leaders of sport and to step up and really make an impact, essentially. So although I, I was coordinator of Whistler 2019 and I sit on the organising committee and so on. So, yeah, my research certainly has... It has some impact, but there's a big, a much wider team around me um, of amazing women leaders themselves who are essentially leading the facilitation and the delivery um, of Whistler as we term it. If people want to get involved uh, with that, either by attending one of the residentials or even by helping out, um, maybe on delivering a session, how would they be able to do that? 
In terms of participation, we will send out the call for applications. I believe it will be September, October of this year. So that will be going out. And it's, it's for any women that work within sport organisations and are in middle or senior leadership positions or management positions. And we have certain criteria around that, but that can all be found on, on the website for the Women's Sport Leadership Academy. So if you Google it, then um, you'll come to the website and more information can be found there. In terms of delivering the sessions, uh, we have a core facilitator team for each residential week. And that's made up mostly of people who have actually graduated from the Women's Sport Leadership Academy themselves. So the Academy isn't just the residential week, but it's also facilitated training, uh, networking. So we've got a network now of 283 women from 52 countries that have graduated from Whistler, uh, which is a, a statistic that we're really proud of. And that's women both within sport and sport for development. So we've got a real growing network of these women leaders. Um, and generally, the, you know, the facilitators come through the program itself. So it's a further development opportunity because we see that the development of these women leaders doesn't stop when the program ends but it keeps happening through cpd and networking and then the opportunity to be a facilitator so offering one-off session is not really something that we do um, if somebody's interested in being a facilitator for the whole week then we'd certainly be interested in, in having a conversation but it's really about developing uh, relationships across the week between the facilitators and the participants within a, a really safe environment and we feel like if we have lots of people coming in different people throughout the week that that safe environment is potentially jeopardized a bit and with the anita white foundation is that embedded at chichester is that part of what the university of chichester is about or is it equally as outward facing it's both. So it's located within the university. It's part of the university within the Institute of Sport. And it's made up of essentially those that are on the, the operational management group. Myself, Dr. Jordan Matthews, who's a senior lecturer at the university. The chair-elect is uh, Dr. Susie Eberly, who's also a senior lecturer at the university. And then uh, Dr. Anita White herself um, sits on the operational management group. And we also have a student action team. So we, we embed students within the work that we do. Um, they help with fundraising, social media, communication, spreading the word across the student community and so on. Um, but really what we aim to do is combine scholarship and activism for women in sport. So obviously that scholarship element is really strongly linked to the university and some of the work that I'm doing um, as a research fellow, some of the research. We've got an archive that's based at the university, the Anita White Foundation archive, that um, basically documents the history of the women in sport movement, um, including the International Working Group for Women in Sport. So we hold a lot of documents around their history, the development of the Women's Sport Foundation, now Women in Sport. And we're very open for um, anybody interested in the women in sport movement and women in sport activism to come and visit the archive. And then we offer, um, or our third secondary focus is education development of women leaders and scholars. So the Women's Sport Leadership is the key flagship project of the Anita White Foundation. And then we've also got things such as Catalyst Grants, which we offer to graduates of the Academy. Um, and they're small grants for them to go off and develop their own programmes to enhance the experiences of girls and women in sport in their own country or their own organisation. 
Um, and then we have some other online projects that we're working on that link to the archive, which are around preserving the heritage of women in sport. Uh, one of those is led by my colleague Jordan Matthews. It's a, a timeline for women in sport which documents the history of key events around hundreds of sports within hundreds of countries. It's a really amazing resource. And then I've led on the development of an online resource called The Changemakers, which is celebrating the life and work of key women in sport scholars and activists um, in the field. And Professor Celia Brackenridge was our first change maker that we celebrated. Are you going to add more to that then? Yeah, we're in talks at the moment with the International Working Group for Women in Sport around how we can further develop that. And it's just looking at resource to do so, um, both in terms of, of time and financial resource. Lucy, you speak so eloquently about these things. So I'm sure you'll be able to make a big hit in terms of working as a consultant, for instance, for businesses on leadership and gender equality, because you, you just speak so naturally. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much. And, and that's definitely something I think that most researchers want to try and create impact and apply their research. And that's something I'm really passionate about. Um, so thank you very much. That, that's much appreciated. Well, lovely speaking to you. Is there anything else that you would like to add that we've not maybe covered? No, I think that's everything. I think just for everybody to look out for for the call for applications for the next Women's Sport Leadership Academy. Um, but other than that, I think we've covered everything. Excellent. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jackie.